Welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. I am Dr. Cole, myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into our orthopedic in-training exam review featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine as we go through trauma. We have gone through a good amount and we are uh, getting closer to the end of the limb. Um, so without further ado, we hope you all enjoy this episode. And if you have not, please go and leave us a review and follow us on Instagram and uh, Twitter, as well as Facebook, all at Nailed It Ortho. We made it very easy. Nailed It Ortho. So uh, without further ado, enjoy this episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Just like you said, you're, you mentioned you, uh, you put the screws where you do not want the nail to go. And I think that is a great way of thinking about it because, you know, the, the use of... Uh, Polar screws is not also with is not only with you know proximal third tibia shaft. Some people use them for distal third tibia shaft fractures, depending on where it is. Some people use it in different femur femur fractures where you don't want it to go, where you don't want the deformity to go one way. So there's many different ways you can use these polar blocking screws, but those are uh, commonly again tested when we're talking about our proximal third tibia shaft fractures. And, and again, I like how you touched on that point. If your starting point is too medial, you'll at least that kind of that valgus deformity. Uh, so yeah, strong work on, uh, on, on, on these nailing these proximal third tibia shaft fractures. Yeah. I, I love nailing fractures. That's, it's a lot more satisfying and fun to do than putting a, a plate on them. So, <laughs> um, yeah. hashtag nailed it. But, uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, the, uh, so a lot of this is really for, for closed injuries that we've been talking about. Um, but, um, as we know, the tibia is notorious for, uh, having bad outcomes when it is open. Um, but what's, what's the best thing you can do for patients or the most important step to, uh, treat the open tibia fractures? Yeah, first thing ED calls. Hey, we got a we got another one for you. Uh, <laughs> we got to open a tibia shaft fracture. First thing, has it got an IV antibiotics? Uh, that is the most important step to prevent infection of these open tibia shaft fractures. Is the administration of IV antibiotics. Make sure they get that as soon as possible. As soon as they come through the door, within the first couple of hours, uh, that is what one thing you want to do. Now, you know, of course, with these patients that have these uh, open tibia shaft fractures, you know, the, we want to, you know, inspect the wound for any kind of gross debris. We want to take a look at the soft tissues and, and see what grade of injury it is. And, you know, they can kind of go back to our beginning talks on uh, Castillo-Anderson classification for open fractures. But, you know, you want to evaluate the wound and then for urgently uh, take it up for uh, irrigation and debris and expect the open wounds. And we all know that, you know, our um, our uh, our classification for 3B uh, fractures are going to be done at the end of our debridement. Um, but what are the what, what are some of the most important aspects of uh, irrigation debridement in these open tibia shaft fractures? Uh, yeah, so it's it's urgent and thorough, sharp debridement. Um, it's not just kind of running saline through the wound and calling it good. It's really getting the devitalized tissue out of there and 
uh, one thing that's kind of stuck with me since the AO course that I took up in uh, Seattle a few years ago was um, that the, the best debridement you can do is with a knife. And that's really the sharp debridement of all the devitalized tissue. And what that does is it um, gets rid of the necrotic uh, tissue that's not going to heal well and allows for a nice clean bleeding edge of tissue uh, to help with uh, either primary closure or uh, if you need some sort of soft tissue coverage via rotational flap versus uh, free flap. Um, yeah, totally agree. But because uh, I, I mean, people go and well, splash some water. Yeah, I mean, what is in uh, it in the general surgeons? I, I haven't looked at their own literature on this, but it's just one of those things that was kind of harped on in medical school was like that rhyme of what the solution to pollution is dilution. And they yeah. just kept saying, Oh, if, like it for maybe for like a bowel rupture. Yeah. You want to wash out all of the, <laughs> all of the contents within the abdomen there. And, and the only way to really do that is by just pouring a bunch of fluid in there and getting it diluted out and, and, and doing it that way. But when we're talking about, long bones or or even just any or open fracture in orthopedic surgery it's it is not uh dilution that's going to help these patients it's the sharp debridement um to get out that the devitalized tissue so uh we've uh we said that uh reamed locked uh nails was the kind of standard of care for closed uh tibia shaft fractures is there uh, any difference in reaming versus unreaming for open fractures? Yeah, so for open fractures, studies show that there is no differences in outcomes. And the particular study that we're referring to uh, is a study that was published in uh, JBJS in 2008, uh, the randomized trial of reamed and unreamed intramedullary nailing of tibia shaft fractures, the study to prospective evaluate reamed intermedullary nails in patients with tibial fractures, also known as the SPRINT trial. You may hear this word thrown around a lot, but S-P-R-I-N-T. And again, this was like a, a multi-center center blinded randomized control trial. I had over uh, 1,300 patients in, in, in this. I had tibial shaft fractures. I was treated with either reamed or intermedullary, na or intramedullary uh, nailing, uh, reamed or unreamed. And again, in these open tibia fractures, they noted no outcome in differences, but in closed fractures, there is a benefit from reaming, uh, which we spoke about a little bit earlier. So again, there is a difference between open and closed uh, tibia shaft fractures, at least according to that study. If anybody knows of uh, some newer studies or newer things that have uh, come out that we do not know about, please feel free to email us at uh, nailedortho at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your uh, your thoughts uh, but speaking of that and you know, i feel like this next thing was just like a random fact um that we have to know but what is the uh, the role of bone morphogenic protein or bmp2 in open tibia shaft fractures uh yeah so when it's used with intramedullary uh fixation uh it does lead to fewer reoperations in these acute and that's the key is acute uh, on the oite um, I think in, on at least one test in the past five years, they have, uh, talked about this BMP2 for open tibia fractures. 
or for any tibia fracture. And the differences in the answers were talking about, uh, do you use BMP2 for chronic non-unions? Do you use BMP2 for closed fractures? Do you use BMP2 for acute open fractures? And obviously the answer would be that it is better if used in acute open tibia shaft fractures. And that's the, that's where the research lies in those. Um, and I, I haven't ever used it. Um, none of the yeah, attendees where I am, uh, we've used, I think they've thrown and outside of what I just said, I think that they've put BMP in for their like chronic non-unions that have gone through several revision surgeries as a last ditch effort. So don't go off of that. Um, the, the studies show acute open tibia fractures for the BMP two. And then one quick thing for that, uh, uh, for the sprint trial that you just talked about, um, how I think about it is, uh, because closed fractures are closed, there's a, I see a benefit for reaming because you're able to keep all of the reaming contents around the fracture site. Uh, mm. in a closed fracture, whereas in an open fracture, you do get some uh, uh, kind of extrusion of the reaming contents, and then you're irrigating out the wound several times before you close. And so I think you do lose some of that benefit of the um, kind of endosteal autograph that you're adding to the, to the fracture site in an open mm. fracture, but I don't know if that's the true reason for it but that's just how I think thought. about it. Who knows? Maybe yeah. maybe that'll be something that we look at in the future. But we've talked a lot about intramedullary nails because those are by far the most common way to treat tibia shaft fractures. Um, but there are some instances where uh, ORAF is preferred or needed. Um, what sort of uh, fracture characteristics are you looking for to do an open reduction internal fixation rather than an intramedullary nail? Yeah, so these are going to be, you know, fracture patterns that are they're too proximal or too distal for nail fixation, you know. So uh, sometimes you can check with the implants, but for example, your distal interlocking holes for your nails uh, on different implants have uh, the, the, the screw holes are different um, lengths away from the from the tip of the nail so you may have a fracture that goes is right around the tip of the nail that you can't get any good interlocks and distal to that so that may be kind of like a relative indication to fix it uh with open reduction and tonal fixation and it's kind of the same thing for these these proximal uh fractures or if patients have you know for example hardware that's already in place like a total knee arthroplasty so if they have a a long stem total knee arthroplasty you're not really going to be able to um, put an intramedullary rod uh, in that patient um, secondary to that hardware. So you have to think of some other ways. And then also um, some cases where you may need to do a revision and you're using some bone graft and you're trying to get some compression um, through, you know, through that fracture side. And we'll talk a little bit more about these tibia non-unions, but those are some uh, areas where you may consider uh, open reduction and internal fixation versus uh, intramedullary nailing in these tibia shaft fractures. And, and since we're talking about that, what are some of the difficulties with over versus intramedullary nailing? Um, yeah, so uh, intramedullary nail is a kind of a lesser invasive uh, technique. And in order to really 
evaluate the fracture site and to place a plate, you're going to use larger incisions and you're going to have more dissection. And with more dissection comes uh, kind of uh, more periosteal elevation, uh, more exposure of the fracture sites, which can, which can lead to decreased blood flow. So uh, that's not the uh, kind of most desired outcome with uh, fixing these, but uh, is still required if you want to uh, plate them. Um, for the physicians themselves, they're going to have a greater radiation exposure intraoperatively. Uh, I can't exactly recall the study, but that has been shown that the fluoro time is increased. And then, uh, like you said before, um, if it's a uh, proximal third fracture and you have to use a long uh, plate, like a long list plate around a hole's uh, 11, 12, and 13 on that plate have been shown to be the most common area where the uh, superficial peroneal nerve crosses uh, over to the anterolateral ankle and down to innervate the uh, skin of the foot uh, right, in, right at that area. So um, what are some of the differences, though, between plating and intramedullary nail for distal third tibia shaft fractures? Yeah, I mean, they, they both have similar healing rates, um, similar wound complications, uh, similar rates of superficial and deep infections. But the one thing to note is that you do have a less chance of malalignment with plate fixation, which which in my head would make sense. Like if you're sitting there staring at the bones and you're, and you're looking and you're assessing the cortical reads that you'll be able to uh, line it up a little bit better uh, and get a little bit better fixation with the plate. Not better fixation, but uh, a better alignment with the plate versus a nail. Uh, and, and one of the things that we always hear about a lot when we're talking about these tibia fractures or open lower extremity fractures is this this leap trial. Um, and that's something that you know we'll all hear about at some point. Can you kind of go over um, some of the important things that was noted from this, this LEAP trial, or I guess highly tested topics and kind of what this trial is a little bit, uh, a little bit about? Yeah, so, I mean, this is one of the, I think, most commonly kind of discussed and uh, referenced uh, trials. Uh, notably, I think because uh, of the injury it looks at, which is very uh, common tibia shaft fractures, and what a lot of people were looking at was the kind of soft tissue uh, severity, what is going to lead to an amputation versus not, um, are these patients just kind of better off getting a, a primary amputation or should we attempt a limb salvage for these patients? And um, I think there were, there were some initially, uh, uh, initially there was just some, some areas of concern uh, regarding uh, sensation or motor uh, uh, nerve activity uh, of the foot and if it's going to actually be a, a useful foot for these patients. And I think this LEAP trial did a really good job of hashing out a lot of that uh, ambiguity and controversy so that we can make better decisions in treating these patients with uh, severe lower extremity injuries so that we're not immediately 
jumping to one treatment versus another. And um, really the, what was initially thought was to be an important predictor for uh, amputation was absence of plantar sensation. Um, there were a lot of people out there and I think that there still are people out there that argue, well, if you don't have sensation on the plantar aspect of your foot, then you're just kind of going down the road, similar to diabetic, uh, like Charcot arthropathy or diabetic foot ulcerations, where um, they'll get ulcers, they'll get infected, they'll get osteomyelitis, they'll get amputations anyways. So why don't we just do an amputation earlier uh, because they don't have sensation on, on the bottom of their foot so that they can rehab faster, get back to their life faster, do all that, which on the surface sounds like we're doing the best thing for these patients. But um, what's been shown is some of that plantar sensation eventually returns uh, one to two years down the road. And there's actually um, uh, nothing that predicts amputation outside of ipsilateral soft tissue injury severity. And so that was the thing that the LEAP trial really found was it's not the absence of plantar sensation, but it's actually the soft tissue injury severity that's going to predict eventual lower extremity amputation and lead our discussions with these patients on um, the best treatment protocols that we can come up for them on an individual basis. So uh, you want to evaluate the soft tissue injury. You want a timely admission or transfer to a trauma center, which um, is a predictor of infection as well, that if they are not transferred to a trauma center, they have a higher chance of infection. Um, but they found no difference in outcomes between limb salvage and amputation. So um, the, the patients overall did the same um, when people thought, oh, maybe an amputation was going to provide a better functional outcome. However, uh, if a soft tissue flap, whether that's a free flap or rotational flap was required due to the extent of soft tissue injury, they did have worse outcomes. And I think that is what led to those patients needing more amputations because of the worst outcomes with the limb salvage and soft tissue flap. But uh, again, this trial, if you haven't read it, if you haven't looked at it, go and look at it. It's the uh, LEAP trial. Um, let me see here. Uh, I can't recall. If you Also, if you search LEAP study, uh, <laughs> don't yeah. do that because the first things that come up are uh, allergy to peanuts. It's, uh, <laughs> it, wrong study. <laughs> it, yeah, it's the, it, it was a randomized, it was a, the, I think because it's a little bit more common is it's a randomized trial of peanut consumption in infants. <laughs> so <laughs> want to make sure that, you, <laughs> that you search leap and like tibia fractures or lower yeah. extremity injury or something like that. But the long form name of it is a lower extremity assessment project, which is where they got leap from. And again, it's the best available evidence at this point on limb threatening lower extremity uh, trauma. So go look at it, go read it. You will be pimped on it. You'll be tested on it. Let's see here. So uh, another unfortunate fact of tibia fractures is uh 
delayed union versus non-union versus mal-union and all of that. Um, how would you kind of best describe or or uh, kind of convey to another colleague what's the difference between uh, the delayed union versus non-union? Yeah, first of all, I'd like to say that was a great explanation and, and, and summarization or summary, summarization, I'm just making up words, uh, of the <laughs> LEAP trial. <laughs> that was a great summary of the uh, leave trial. I don't know where I came up with summarization from, but uh, anyways, uh, but no, to answer your question, a delayed union, especially with tibia fractures, we're looking at delayed union would be anywhere from six to nine months after fixation and a non-union is going to be greater than nine months. So you get a little bit more time. So you wait till nine months to call it a non-union and, and between six and nine months is called a delayed union. And, and you know, the, the reason of this is because, you know, there's studies out there that show, um, Delaying uh, reoperation for non-unions until six months may actually decrease the need for reoperation. So some of these patients may actually go on to heal their tibia shaft fractures, you know, at around seven or eight months. So you want to give them a little bit of time. If you if you declare it a non-union before six months, these uh, patients may be uh, being taken back for unnecessary surgeries as the bones might mm -hmm. have uh, healed. Um, that being said, so say, for example, we have a non-union, uh, you know, they, they came to our clinic 10 months after we take a look at them, they have this uh, transverse fracture, there's still a little gap and you see, you, you see non-union, you know, you see hypertrophic uh, uh, non-union, but anyway, you see a non-union. What are some of our mm -hmm. treatment options for our tibia shaft non-unions? Yeah, so, I mean, if they kind of went along with our previously stated protocol of reamed, statically locked um, intramedullary nail. The, uh, really, the first thing you're doing is uh, dynamization. And whether that's fully just removing uh, screws, uh, either at the proximal or distal end, usually they're removed at the distal end because you don't want the nail to uh, kind of push itself too proximally and go into the knee joint. Um, you can just do a, an easy dynamization by just removing screws, or you can remove screws and then place new ones in a dynamized location of the nail just to help control if you're still concerned about rotational stability uh, of it. And then uh, the... I think the more preferred method, though, especially for... Uh, oligotrophic or atrophic non-unions is a reamed exchange nail. And the reason why you want to re-ream is to provide that bone graft again. Um, but also it allows you to use a bigger uh, nail for more stability uh, for these fractures. So either dynamization or a reamed exchange nailing. One quick thing I think we'll cover just at the, at the end, just don't let me forget about uh, talking about uh, Superpatellar and infrapatellar nailing and the differences between those. I wanted to add one more point on those that we didn't get to. Uh, no, let's go for it. We can do it right now. Um, let's do it. But uh, yeah, so one of the, I mean, it's a little bit newer information that's out now. Uh, it's been out for a few years and it may start showing up on exams is that the, uh, with the superpatellar and infrapatellar nailing, the there's really not a lot of differences in outcomes between the two. 
but it has been shown that super patellar nailing does result in uh, improved reduction and alignment of distal third tibia fractures. And uh, I think that the reasoning for that is uh, because you're nailing them more in a supine semi-extended manner rather than over a uh, triangle, you're able to hold that distal reduction easier rather than having the foot just kind of hang in space and having one or two people holding the leg in appropriate alignment while you're nailing it. But that's just one thing I think will start showing up is that with a super patellar nail, you have a better distal third alignment. And I think that's the, really the only difference that's been hashed out between those two. Nice. Very good. I like it. Um, but uh, now that we're kind of, I guess, talking about some of the uh, kind of undesired outcomes of intramedullary nails, whether it's a non-union, a delayed union, uh, but there's also a, a malrotation can occur. Uh, does tibial malrotation have uh, significant effects on outcomes? Yeah, I thought this was uh, this was interesting. You know, I was, I was reading one of the studies that that uh, kind of answers or goes along with this question, and this is out of JBJS in 2012, uh, named "Functional Impact of Tibial Malrotation Following Intramedullary Nailing of Tibia Shaft Fractures." And they noted in their study, even though they had high rates of tibial malrotation, I think they noted up to about 30 percent, which can be uh, which can be common in distal third tibia shaft fractures. <clears throat> after long, locked intermedullary nailing of these just isolated diaphyseal tibial fractures that the malrotation did not have a significant intermediate term functional uh, impact for these patients. So I thought that was interesting. At first, I would have thought, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, if, you're, if it's rotated, of course, but um, there are studies out there that show it does not have as uh, as high as an effect or as a significant as effect that we uh, that we that I, at least I would have thought about in, at first. So uh, that is the article that we are referring to for the answer of of that question on the uh, malrotation. Now, what are some of the uh, prognostic factors for worse outcomes? You know, worse outcomes being non-union or needing revision surgery and 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 implant failure after intramedullary nailing of a tibia. And I know this is based on one of um one of these articles kind of one of these sprint articles but um i'll let you go go about it what are some of the prognostic factors for worse outcomes in these uh in these tibia shaft fractures yeah so some of it is uh kind of self-explanatory so things like a high energy mechanism um if you have a worse injury to start you're probably going to have a worse outcome uh, similar to some of the other research out there that's, I think is kind of silly, but still probably necessary that says like higher ASA scores going into surgery results in worse outcomes. And it's like, yeah, if somebody has heart disease, diabetes, and they're a smoker, they're going to do worse after surgery than somebody who's 20 years old and perfectly healthy. But regardless, um, the high energy mechanism, uh, one interesting thing, and I, these aren't really used anymore, but a stainless steel nail compared to titanium, the Young's modulus uh, of elasticity is so different between stainless steel and cortical bone that uh, 
fracture healing is not really amenable to those fixed with a stainless steel nail compared to titanium, which is titanium and cortical bone are much more similar. So their, their bending strengths and all of that are going to kind of fall in line with each other. So it's more favorable for healing. So uh, again, high energy mechanism, use of a stainless steel nail, which is more stiffer. Uh, if you have a persistent fracture gap, uh, obviously you don't want that. And that is going to lead to a greater uh, gap distance or fracture jump that the osteocytes or osteoblasts are going to have to take in order to heal the fracture. And then um, full weight bearing, uh, I think too early is a, yeah. is a poor uh, prognostic factor just because you're placing a lot of stress on that uh, implant uh, bone interface that they're going to have a worse outcome. You kind of just want to let them chill, let the soft tissues calm down. And then once they start to develop some of that early endochondral ossification center uh, or uh, endochondral ossification, then you can start them on uh, full weight bearing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, a good point you made there about the, uh, about the full weight bearing a little too early. Cause I remember the first time I was reading this and reading the study, I was like, what, what do you mean? Like we, we allow these to weight bear taller. That's a, that's a plus. That's why we do it. But no, I think that it's full weight bearing, uh, too early, um, that can kind of uh, lead to those, those worst outcomes. So yeah, that's, 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 uh, that's good stuff. We are nearing the end. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We have one more episode for trauma. We're just kind of going over some pilon fractures. That'll be the last thing. And then we will transition into uh, into the next topic. I wonder if you all can guess what we'll talk about next. Uh, you know, if, if you can guess what we'll talk about next, send us a message on Instagram and guess the next topic. Uh, you may or may not be right, but we would love to see your guesses. And if you're right, then uh, then we may shout you out on the uh, on air. So without further ado, we'll see you next week.